Thanks for listening to the Community Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Pastor Dan Strutz here. Our desire is to connect people with Christ and community. For more info or to contact us, please visit cbcmountainlake.com. That is the love that we want to speak of and sing of and uh, declare this morning. So uh, this morning we, we are uh, fall in love with Jesus. We are excited about him uh, because he loved us. We want to declare that this morning, and I hope uh, that you can continue to see that even in our message this morning. Uh, just a couple, I wanted to make a couple quick comments before we get into uh, this message. Um, one, uh, yeah, the soccer thing. It's been talked about a lot. Uh, it is something that's exciting. It's a way for us to uh, love on our community, to show uh, them and care for them. And uh, as a coach of the soccer program, you know, you say, why would we host a meal? And I, I think it's just, it honors them, it honors a community, and it, it shows that we want to be part of uh, what's going on and just encourage them. So uh, we want to be part of that. And if you can, stop by uh, to help out, or you can stop by and you just want to grab a hot dog, uh, feel free to do that. But I think it should be a great uh, Sunday, or Tuesday evening, with that being said. Uh, one other, two other things that are just important. Uh, some of you know uh, John and Mary. They're friends from our church here, fam- church family. They're out traveling this summer. Uh, John sent me a text message this morning saying he's back from Africa, so you can be praying and excited for, for them. Things went well. And uh, Mary is still in Armenia with their two daughters. So uh, be praying for them as they're gone, as they're part of our church family. And... Uh, the last comment I had was that at the end of the service, we may or may not have some visitors, uh, visiting singers this morning. So just be aware of that if they if they come in at the end to close out our service this morning. So uh, with that ne- being said, I, I hope, did anyone have a good week this last week? Anyone have a good Sunday of hanging out or a good week of uh, enjoying? Maybe uh, you didn't get your fill of hot dogs. Uh, over the week, so you can come on Tuesday. I, I hope if you did eat hot dogs on the 4th of July, uh, you did not attempt to break Joey Chestnut's record uh, when he ate 74 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Um, I had two at a baseball game, and I said that was enough. Uh, that's, that's plenty right there. So uh, I, I hope you had a great week. We were in Milwaukee this week, uh, enjoying time with family. Uh, that time obviously goes quick, and it's never long enough, but really enjoyable to be back in my hometown uh, where, I, where hey, I don't need a map to get around. It's just easy to figure out the streets and stuff like that. Hey, good to go and hang out. But one of the things that I've noticed as uh, years, three years now we've been here, kind of crazy, uh, one of the things that I've noticed over three years, every time we go back, there's kind of always something new going up or some new construction going up. Now, Milwaukee is one of those towns, like any towns, that, uh, that had really good glory days years ago. But there are definitely parts of it that have gone into good disrepair, that have been, uh, that have fallen apart, especially the roads in Milwaukee, uh, the highways, they, they kind of started to fall apart and they were well-traveled. And, and we know that when roads, especially like a major interstate, starts to crumble, uh, rather than it being useful, the potholes and stuff like that become more of a frustration and they're no good. Now, why would I mention that? I mention it because there we could see, you can see uh, when a a city understands this is broken, it's not working, and they go and tear away the old freeway, the old highway, so that they can build something new. 
that they rejuvenate and renew uh, those roads and areas of town so that they can be used and used with excitement. This is the context that we have this morning for the book of Isaiah. This is kind of what we want to see Isaiah doing, or Isaiah speaking of this morning. Uh, you'll notice uh, that we're going to Isaiah 34 and 35 today. Uh, we're going there, and you can start to turn in your uh, bulletin or in your Bibles to uh, that passage there. I'll get there in just a moment, where we're starting to look kind of at Isaiah's closing judgment, uh, uh, or God's closing judgment through Isaiah for God's people and for the world ultimately. So our message title this morning is Final Judgment and a Highway to Restoration. Final Judgment and a Highway to Restoration. Now some of you guys are newer, some of you guys are visitors, so it's just helpful to uh, comment on Isaiah. We're going through the book of Isaiah and a journey through there, and and it's a big book, and we're uh, halfway through now in this journey. And Isaiah, for the last bunch of chapters, has has kind of called out the people and called out the world and said that God is the king. He's not only the king, but he's also a holy God. He's a holy king that looks to be revered and looked up to and glorified. But the world, the nations, they haven't honored him. They haven't followed him. And judgment is coming. What's more is for Israel, Judah in particular, the the southern kingdom of God's people, uh, Judah hasn't followed God either. It's helpful to remind ourselves going into this passage of what's going on. Uh, The reality is is that uh, Assyria, this big bad nation, and I know I mention that a lot, but it's a helpful reminder of the context, uh, that Assyria is the nation that is overshadowing these people. They are on the doorstep. There's concern that they're going to come in and attack and wipe them out. And it's helpful for us to remember that that overshadowing reality in the midst of the question of, will they trust God? Will they trust God, or will they turn to other things to be their Savior? Will they turn to other things to be their Rescuer, their Redeemer, in the midst of present danger? For Israel, they had trusted Egypt. They were turning to Him and putting their their trust in, in, in another nation. And the question for us this morning is, we might not have Assyria on our back doorstep, But for each of us, there are things in our lives that we uh, turn to and we we look at and say, "There there is darkness looming in the skyline. And in those things, we might turn to other things of the world to trust, to be our Savior. But this reminder through Isaiah is, again, no, God is the one who will save us. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. But He's also the one that will save us. We want to trust in Him. So that context leads us into the question this morning is, will these people trust in something that's ultimately going to end, or will they trust in the God that cares for them and loves them? We'll look again now at Isaiah 34, but let me pray and ask God to speak through his word as we turn there. Let's uh, pray. Father God, we thank you this morning that you are a holy, great God, that you are a God that We've sung about this morning. We've honored you with our lips. We've declared you to be our king. We say that now because you live, we can face tomorrow. And we ask that that be true of us, that it not just be 
movement of our lips, but it can be an action of our hearts. Lord, that's the ultimate question that these people are facing here in this text. Will we trust in a God who's holy and who loves us and has the best plan for us? Or will we stumble and be destroyed? Spirit, speak through me and speak through these people as we know that our life, our life has a lot going on. Would you ask us to follow you, to trust you in this life, and we want that for our people. Father, this word, thank you for keeping it, thank you for preserving it, and thank you for teaching us something that while it's an old text, it's very, very pertinent to our life today. God, we thank you in your name, Jesus, for the power of your spirit. Amen. Isaiah 34 says this, Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O people. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountain shall flow with their blood, and all the hosts of heaven shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, and as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For the sword, my sword, has drunk its fill from the heavens. Behold, it descends in judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword, it is sated with blood, and it's gorged with the fat, and the blood of the lambs and the goats, and the fat of the kidneys and the rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. The streams of Eden shall cut, shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her, her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall be, not be quenched. Smoke shall go up forever from generation. It shall be lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. And I'll pause there for now. The text that we have in front of us is an interesting one. It's a difficult one. And it's one that we need to remind ourselves that it's full of uh, both poetry, which uh, sometimes words that are used might not maybe vague or, or not clear, it, but it's also prophecy, which is speaking of something in the future, it's speaking something in advance of Isaiah. And so it's important to us to remember that what is being used here, the imagery that is being used, uh, is, is important um, to these people, that it would have had to be understood by these people in their time in some way to understand what exactly is God up to? What is his plan? I will say that in this, that there are commentators, there are people, there's a lot of discussion about what is all this imagery mean. When we get into the later sections, we start even hearing about these different animals that are brought up and will dwell in the land. And the question is, what is God doing here? What is he 
talking about? What is the goal of this passage? And I think the first thing that we have to see, the first thing that this writer wants us to see via God is to listen to the Lord. Verse 1, he starts talking about the nations to give attention, to draw near to this message. And there's an invite there to listen to what the Lord will do. There's a for certain comment that Isaiah has been given from God and said, God is saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm giving you a vision. And Isaiah wants us to perk our ears up. He says, come and hear, come and hear, come and listen. And for us, we want to also listen. For us, we want to be reminded again that in this text that we're reading in front of us and the whole Bible, one of the things we want to do is to be good listeners of God. Because unlike some other uh, belief systems that God is just outside of the world and, and we have to uh, get do something to motivate God to get off his backside and do something. No, this God is a God that is moving and acting and has a plan in the world. And the question is, will we listen to what he is doing? Will we hear what he's about to do? Not only that, but will we respond correctly? Again, not just with our ears, but will it travel that difficult place from our head down to our heart? And will we walk out and respond properly to the message that God has for us? Not just what he has done, not just what he's doing, but also what he will do in the future. This passage is ultimately about something that's going to happen, a judgment. Will we respond? Will we listen? Will we care? question that we need to ask as we start into this passage. Now the passage continues on. It continues right into the heart of this passage, verses 2 through 8, and really kind of continues all the way through the rest of 34, and it speaks of a judgment that will come. There's a future plan of judgment that is going to come across. This is the end of what has been basically since chapter 13. Now we're in chapter 34, and it's talking about God and how he's holy, how he's going to make things uh, work out the way he wants, and there's going to be judgment as part of that. You'll notice in this passage as you read through it that this group, this nation called Edom, becomes kind of the nation that is being judged. Edom, there are also, the people there would be the Edomites. They would be the ones that are the descendants of Esau, Isaac's, or uh, Jacob's brother, the, uh, the brother that would now soon be called Israel. This is basically his brother, his cousins. These are in relation with each other. And they're being called out as the example of those who will be destroyed. They're being used as an example those who the God is going to judge. Now, there's two reasons why I think we need to see them as examples and the two reasons that are pertinent to uh, why God uses them as an example for the whole world. One is that from the beginning, from the start of, of Esau's life and throughout, these people have always been hostile to God. They've been counter to God's ways. They have not wanted to walk. They wanted to go against God's plan to bring a Messiah or bring someone out from the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've been counter to that, and they've tried to work against that. Throughout history, they've been hostile to what God is doing. And so the example of Edom 
fits well to those who are hostile against God's plan, who want to disregard God's ways, who want to disregard what he's doing in the world. The other reason that it's important to think of Edom as the perfect example is because Edom was eventually defeated by someone, and it was defeated by King David. King David was the one who came in uh, before he set up in the promised land completely, and he wiped, or he got rid of and kicked out Edom from the land. He got rid of them. And I think the reason that they become an example here in this text is because there's an idea here that it's going to be the judgment that's going to come on Edom is going to come through a king, which is something that Isaiah has been saying all along, that comes from the line of David. That this judgment that's coming is going to be enacted by a king. It's not just a vague judgment that happens by Father God outside, but it's going to actually happen by the one who is to come that sits on David's throne. We know him to be the Messiah, Jesus. That that judgment is going to happen via him. Now, this future plan of final judgment, it works out and it plays out in in the form of a poem. Verses 2, let's see, 2, 6, or 5. He goes down the list and and basically goes through and you see multiple times, for the Lord, for the Lord, for the Lord. And it goes through this process of, in a poetic fashion, speaking of the process of which God's judgment is going to come speaks first of God in a way that we don't always like to think about, that we don't always like to, uh, it's, it's tough to swallow. It's, we know God as this loving God, this God who, who's gracious and mercy and, and, and just kind of ooey-gooey and just loves on us, right? So when we have this God that all of a sudden we read in verse 2, for the Lord is enraged, he's angry. He's frustrated. We can kind of cringe at that. We get uncomfortable, almost like, oh, why did we preach on this? Why did we bring this up? Well, it's in Isaiah, so we kind of next text, right? It's important for us to acknowledge that this is part of the scriptures, that this enragement, this frustration with God, with people, is part of who God is and what comes out of him in the process of God's people walking counter to him. That God gets frustrated at that. Now we remember from creation, why did God even create us? Why did God even uh, create the world? I, I think it's ultimately for us to look to Him, to worship Him as His creature, to look at our Creator and honor Him and glorify Him and magnify Him. That is part of the purpose of why God created us. And right from the beginning, people have chosen to turn and take glory on themselves, to honor themselves rather than look to Him as their God. You and I do it all the time. We, we want to glorify ourselves. We want to make much of ourselves rather than God. And those are the kind of things that God becomes upset, enraged, because it's not as He would desire. It's not as He would desire, because as God, He deserves all that glory. We don't deserve that glory. He does. And so it's easy, or it's it's we need to understand that this enragement isn't something that's a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. 
because for us, we need to understand that God's rage, his anger, comes out of people taking from him what he is owed. You could also use the word wrath in here. And that is the acting out against this enragement, this anger. One commentator, he, he talks about God's wrath in terms of this. He says, God's wrath is his love action against sin. God's wrath is his love action against sin. So when God is angry at sin, his wrath is a way of going against that. He's doing it because he loves. It seems odd and counterintuitive, but he goes on to say, God is love. We know that and would agree with that. And God does all the things for his glory. He's working things out for his good. He loves his glory above all, and we should honor that and want that. Therefore, it says, therefore, God rules the world in such a way that brings himself maximum glory. This means that God must act justly and judge sin. Otherwise, God would not be God. Because he would allow his glory to be diminished. God's love for his glory motivates his wrath against sin. That it's because God's glory, because he is so holy... We remember back to that image that that Isaiah had in the beginning of the book of God, and he understands it. He gets the glory, and he's saying it's that glory that needs to be understood throughout the world. And so he's become enraged, and he's going to, it goes on to say that he's devoting all this stuff and his fury against these people who don't honor him to destruction. They have not turned to him becomes a story that we don't necessarily tell our kids when they ask for a Bible story at bedtime. But it's an important one for us to hear, knowing that God feels this way about sin. And from there it goes on to say that God has a sword. He has an instrument, uh, the, the tool that shows a kingly authority. He has something that is going to work out and draw bloodshed. It's going to draw out destruction for those who don't follow him. But by the time we get to verse 6 and 7, it's really interesting because it's not just talking about uh, a battlefield anymore. It's not just talking about war. It's actually talking about sacrifice. Look at verse 6 and 7. It starts talking about the fat, the blood of lambs and goats, the kidneys of rams. The Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah biggest city in Edom. He starts to talk about wild oxen will fall, young steers, mighty bulls. He talks in the language of sacrifice, that because of this brokenness, sacrifice is going to come. Now, for Israel, they were given means by which they could sacrifice and give the lifeblood of an animal to gain forgiveness, to gain uh, atonement for their sins. Similarly, here he's talking about sacrifice is going to come. Why? We turn to our New Testament. We know that Paul himself says that the wages of sin is death. That because something sins, when something sins, there is a price to be paid. There is blood to be spilt. And for God, he looks at the world and says, because of the sin, death will happen. Again, not a pleasant picture. Not a happy, feely 
uh, desire for us to read and consider. But again, we need to understand that this is for God's glory. God needs to, is going to follow through with this so that his glory can be made known. Goes on. Verse 8. Speaks of vengeance. So, so far we have that God has become angry. He has a sword. There's going to be a sacrifice. And it's for vengeance. Again, this can be an unpleasant thought. God being a vengeful God. Again, why why do we... It's hard for us to reconcile that. Mostly because I think there are two definitions of vengeance, and we often use the first one to describe God. The first one that I saw, vengeance is a vindictive revenge inflicted by wicked people against someone who's innocent. Now, if we see that as being our God is wicked and he's doing this to innocent people, then obviously that's not a good thing. We don't want a God like that. That doesn't seem like a loving God. But I think one of the problems with that is, is again, we are in a time, in a place where we are seeing more and more and thinking more and more that people are innocent, that they're free from guilt, that they haven't done anything, that they're really, you and I are really just good people, right? And when we think about that and we think of ourselves as innocent, then anything vengeful becomes uh, frustrating and it, it doesn't make sense. But when we see this other definition, the rendering of a just punishment upon a wrongdoer, or the recompense given to a victim of the wrongdoing, we see that this vengeance that God is bringing forward is something that is a repayment, a, a Uh, uh, bringing forward of something that is owed to those who have done wrongly, who have wronged God. The idea of vengeance here becomes restitution or repayment, that God is going to repay for the wrongs done against Him, and here it even says against His people Israel. That God is going to make payment, and He is going to make things correct, Now, this is important for us to be reminded because so often in our world, we think that we need to be the ones that move forward. We move forward in revenge. But this is saying, no, we trust in God that He is going to take care of the wrongs that are done, that He is going to walk forward and make right all the things in the world. The story is about His destruction, His judgment that is going to come. Something that's still ahead of us something that was way ahead of Isaiah. That he is angry with sin, that he is going to do the sword, the sacrifice, bring vengeance and restitution. Now, these things are all echoed in the book of Revelation later on. These stories of God and how he's working his things out in the end. We see the lamb opening seals and we see the lamb uh, using these descriptive things of how he's going to work out his judgment. So we know that in part this story, and I've said this before about Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of stuff in his own time, Isaiah speaks of stuff at the end, and Isaiah also speaks of stuff in the first coming of Jesus. So here we can start to see that there's part of this that's already understood that's in the future, that is still yet to happen in our day in 2018. That God's judgment fully, completely, is still going to happen. We need to ask, what do we believe in that? 
What do we believe about that? Are we living in light of that? Are we living trusting that in our life as we go forward is that God is going to work things out? But I think this also points to something that happened in Jesus' first few years. In the midst of all this destruction, in the midst of us realizing that we are the ones who deserve this vengeance, we are the ones that deserve the wrath upon us because we have dishonored God, we haven't followed Him, we deserve to be sacrificed. But what we can hear in that is this beautiful verse that we all know. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish or be destroyed, but have everlasting life. We are reminded of that in Jesus' not only his second coming when he will come with that sword, but also in the first coming when we are reminded that in his first coming he took the sword for us. That this thing that Isaiah is speaking is uh, way ahead also happens in his first coming when Jesus took that sword and bore our sin upon his shoulders so that God would look at us and say, we're forgiven. So that God is no longer angry with us. No longer needing to destroy us for his glory, but he has already taken that on his son and, and we are forgiven, freed from his wrath to come. That alone is something for us to worship. That alone is something for us to be reminded and worship our God and proclaim Him as awesome, loving, and great. That this King who will destroy first decided to step in in our place. The text goes on and it speaks and this sounds a little funny when you'll see it come up here. But it essentially speaks of the decreation of the world. I don't know how theologically correct that will look. Again, it, it becomes this questioning of what this actually means, this text. But Isaiah gets into this verse, verses 9 through 17 and 34. He speaks, I'll read from verse 11 actually. He speaks, but the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The eared animal is brought up, as I mentioned before. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He will stretch out a line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there will be none there to call it a kingdom. And all the princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over the strongholds, nettles and thistles in the fortress. It shall be a haunt for jackals, a boat for ostrich. The wild animals shall meet the hyenas. The wild goat shall cry in his to his fellows, indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. The owl's nest and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her, in her shadow. Indeed, there are hawks. The hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these will be, shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has proportioned it out to them while with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. What God is talking about through Isaiah here is that in this judgment, that which is of the world, that which is uh, uh, against God and, and tries to prop itself up and make itself known is going to be wiped out. 
those things of man which try to build towers and, and cities for itself and make itself look great is going to be wiped out. And essentially, the world is going to become a desert. Again, I don't know if this is actual physically what this is going to look like versus what it's going to be spiritually, that God is going to uh, wipe out the world. But what's important here is to see that something of what God is doing here is in reverse order from his creation back in Genesis 1. Verse 9, it talks about this. While he's casting down judgment that this place will be unbearable and it's going to be something that will be forever. Verse 11, he starts to talk about these animals and then he goes into these comments that are important for us to understand. He says, He shall stretch a line of confusion over it and a plumb line of emptiness. Now, we know, if you know what a plumb line is, it's used to make things right, it's used to create, it's used to make things straight, but here it's talking in contrast to that. It's actually being used as a tool of destruction. Remember I talked about how roads in a city, when they're starting to crumble, what they need is to be wiped out, to be gotten rid of. And these words, he'll stretch out a line of confusion, which in the Hebrew could be seen as, they will be rendered as, it will have formlessness. And then he says, there will be emptiness. Those words uh, harken back, and, and the readers of Isaiah would know that he's quoting or bringing forward an idea from Genesis, where we hear in Genesis 1, those very first verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, or it was empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God's plan of judgment isn't just destruction. It's actually to go back to His creation and wipe out those things that have gone wrong so that He can rebuild so that he can have what we know to be the new heavens and new earth. God is going to bring this desert where all that's going to be left are the wild animals and the earth, but no broken humans. But God's not just done there. We move on to chapter 35. It says in chapter 35 these things, and let's verses. It goes on from the desert, and it says this, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given it, given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are, have anxious hearts, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with, re with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The waters break forth in the wilderness, and the streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground spring of water, the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. 
it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrows, and sighing shall flee away. The last point that I have this morning is that God is going to build a highway to walk along. If God is decreating or creating a desert wasteland that's uninhabitable by people, if he is moving in his judgment to decreate, we could say, and wipe out and start anew to bring the new heavens and new earth, that he is going to make this happen in the future. What we also see is this great grace that it's not just that he's going to wipe out, but he's doing it to create something new. We see that desert, verse 1 and 2, it says that the glory shall return to the earth. That we need to be reminded that when we sinned in the beginning, when Adam and Eve broke covenant with God, when they broke their relationship with God, it put a burden on the earth. It said that, that weeds and everything else are going to grow up. And the world is going to be fractured. Here, when we see this desert-like situation where God is going back to where he started, back to the created order of things, what we see is actually that the earth is now able to not be frustrated, but is joyfully singing that God is returning things to the way he wants them to be. What's awesome about this is that the world gets this. The earth is getting this, according to Isaiah. Do we get it? Do we desire for the world to be removed of everything that's broken and, and to go, for God to go back to his way so that he can reign? Or do we like things the way they are? We should desire this. We should want this to come. And in part, we can believe that while much of this incompleteness is full, still ahead, we have already begun to see some of this happen. Look at verse 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing forever. These aren't things that just happened, are happening in the future. These are things that already have started to happen with Christ. Again, like Jesus who took the sword from us and saved us, from the judgment, what we now see is these transformation things happening in the first coming of Christ. It was John the Baptist who said, hey, are you the one, or should we look for another? And what does Jesus give as an argument? He says, the blind see, and the ears are open of the mute. Jesus is saying, I'm this one, and I'm starting to make this pathway. I'm starting to make this highway for you to get back to God. Follow it. 
and see life transformation, not just physical. Those miracles that Jesus created weren't just things to kind of create a, a, a buzz about him. They weren't just to create an excitement that other people could be healed of their ailments. No, what he's saying is, uh, I am the one who you follow after so that you can have complete life transformation back to where God desires creation to go, back towards the final way of things. We see that when we trust in him. When we start to follow after him. When we start to walk, it says in verse 18, on a highway. The highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And even if the fool, they are fools, then they shall not go astray. This idea is that for us, Jesus has gone and paved the way. He, he's gone away from the old system, and he's created a new way for us to get to God, a way that uh, is restoring. And so those who trust and look to him, those who he has taken uh, their sin so that we don't have to be in judgment, we now can walk through a desert wasteland to the ultimate promised land, the place where God is, the place where God wants us to be. These verses are not just for in the future, not just for the end of times, but they're for us today. They're for us today because ultimately, remember, the question all along has been, will I trust in God? Will I trust in Him? Or will I trust in the ways of the world when life gets difficult? In the life where I'm looking around and I see the world's ways and I'm tempted to trust them, to follow them, to be anxious about what's going on in the world, will I trust God? Will I walk through the barrenness of this towards my God following in my King Jesus? It says in verse 9 that there no lion shall be there, no ravenous beast. There's going to be nothing that comes and destroys us when we're walking on Jesus. This is the same words, and this is where I want to kind of close out. If you think that this is just Old Testament, that this is just a comment from Isaiah, we can turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is really this book of saying, after it's called in chapter 11, live by faith, follow after me, uh, follow God's ways and trust in him, faithful that God is going to work. We turn to chapter 12, where the author writes this, Therefore, since we have surround, are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lie aside every weight and sin which so close, which so clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fast forward down to verse 12. It says, Therefore, lift your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the paths of your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Isaiah, Isaiah's words from chapter 35 are brought forward where the author of Hebrews speaks these things, and he's encouraging us to say, even in the New Testament time, after Jesus has come, while he's seated on the throne next to God, we can uh, strengthen ourselves to walk with Jesus in this life, not fearing 
not, uh, not being shaken by the world. But we can look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We sang earlier that song, and I didn't even think about this until we were singing it. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because Jesus lives, we can go forward in our life. We can be strengthened by the story of Jesus. We look to Jesus who went to the cross, died for us, and rose again. And we can be strengthened by that to walk with him in this life. The question goes back to, will we trust? This stuff is going to happen. And will our testimony be, you know what, even when the world is tough, even when I'm uncertain, I know that God, even in his judgment, has created a way for me to walk, has created a way for me to follow him, which is going to lead me to his glory. With that, we can trust by looking to Jesus this morning. Let me pray for you guys as we close up. Father God, we thank you that you are working in the world. That you're working for your glory in the world. That you haven't stepped aside and abandoned uh, what you created. But your plan is that even when we sin for your glory, you are going to bring judgment on that which is not of you. And pave a way for those who you have ransomed from death so that we can walk towards you. Father God, we, we look forward and we long for the day when we are with you unhindered by sin. Uh, when, we are, when we are not experiencing the brokenness of this world. Uh, we long for the day uh, when we will be with you forever. We want that day to come. Uh, but Lord, what we see here in this passage is that we don't have to wait for that. That we can be strengthened even now in you, by the power of your spirit, by Jesus, what you have done, and we can walk with you in this life, knowing confidently of who you are and what you've done. I pray for us as a people that we can uh, follow after you and that we can uh, chase after you, that we can be strengthened knowing that you saved us. Thank you.